Do you know you can receive the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues? I heard that speaking in tongues was of the devil. Does this feel like the devil to you? This is a higher power. <laughs> I want you to know that God is in the house. Whatever you need of God, He can give you tonight. I'm just not sure what's fixing to happen, but I'm fixing to try to preach. That don't mean sit down. That means be careful. So once again, to all of our visitors, thank you, sir, for coming. You might be Darla's guest this time, but next time you can be my guest. I just like your smile. And to these precious folks here sitting in the middle... Sister Kelly, those there, I'm glad you're here in the house of God. Every visitor in the house, I'm just glad you're here. I'm glad God's here. Anybody glad God's here? Stand and take your Bible in your hands. I'm going I'm to take my time tonight getting started because I, 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 I'm pretty excited about tonight. I'm excited about today. I bet you ain't nobody else in here knows what today is. But uh, I'm a little excited about it all. The Lord, the Lord has ministered to my spirit tonight already in this service. Still somewhat sick in my body. But I guess as long as I'm running a fever, I mean as long as I'm sweating, I ain't running a fever. And uh, of course you'd be hard pressed to get up in the midst of all this juking and jiving and not sweat a little bit. I'm not even sure you can be Pentecostal if you don't sweat. And for all of you that are of the upper crust of society and you don't sweat, you perspire. My perspire comes out like sweat. <laughs> I want to read tonight about the end times. And a minute portion of what God had to say about those end times is written in the book of Luke. Chapter number 17. The Bible says, Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house. Let him not come down to take it away. And he that's in the field, let him, not, uh, let him likewise not return back. Then verse number 32 makes one simple statement. Three words that have been the underscoring of many sermons, many studies, many understandings, many opinions. Verse 32 simply says, Remember Lot's wife. And now let me tag one more scripture on that. I'll read from the book of Second Peter. If you wish to turn, you can. The Bible said, And delivered just Lot, verse number 7, vexed with the filthy, filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man, I want you to listen to this now, Bible said, For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Read to you about Lot's wife. Read to you about Lot. The Bible talks about righteous Lot vexed his soul. I will preach tonight, if God will help me, from this subject. Sodom's contradiction. Sodom's contradiction. And God's going to help me, and I hope you're going to help me. God bless you. Clap your hands to the Lord before you seat it. Sit down and turn around and shake somebody's hand when you get there and tell them you're glad they're here tonight. It was on a Friday. It was Friday afternoon, in fact. It was a hot August afternoon and the trip had been long. 
trip had been hard. Pulling into the parking lot was a mixture of emotions that were torn between the plans that had been laid for years ahead and now laying those plans down to reach for an uncertain future. Eight years had been spent in a small 1,500 square foot living space. It's more like a prison cell at times because of the size, but that small 32 foot trailer was a beloved confinement because it was the center of God's will for eight long years. In the parking lot to meet me that day were two men that I still hold precious to my heart today. One of them was Brother Eddie Wilson, whose hand I held up here tonight as we begin to rejoice in the Lord. Don't know if you remember that, Brother Eddie. The other one was my own precious brother, Doug Cheshire. And they were here. That was the 14 years ago. 14 years ago tomorrow, I came to this place to pastor this church. Fourteen years ago, and they have been, without a doubt, the absolute happiest years of my entire life. I thank God that I'm your pastor. You want to know who the backbone of all that was? Watch this. I want everybody to stand up that was here when I first came. I first came. You were here. I want you to stand up. Look around here. What do we have? Five, ten, maybe fifteen people that were here when I first came here. Now, you can be seated. Everybody that is profit since I have been here, you are gained from the beginning. I want you to stand. We got a lot to thank God for. God bless you. You can be seated. The last 14 years have been the happiest years of my life. When I came here, he showed me books where we were averaging about 50, and uh, all of them weren't being faithful, unfortunately. But time has given us a lot of great things here. I can honestly say my life would not be fulfilled in the least had I not spent these 14 years of abundant life. That doesn't mean that there haven't been brief moments of heartaches and pain, but I want you to understand that every day that I've lived here, I've lived in the comfort of knowing that I am in the will of God being in Sealsby, Texas. And in spite of any heartaches, I'm glad to tell you that the task that lied before me 14 years ago is even more precious today. It's more important today. It's more meaningful today than it was in the beginning. Fourteen years ago, I had to accept the solemn and the sacred task. And, and I'm more determined today to fulfill that task than I've ever been. My task then and my task now is one and the same. I have to get you right so I can get you to heaven. That's why God sent me to this place. There's a foolproof way to eliminate all the confusion you may encounter. When you look at a pastor and you wonder why he does the things he does and why he says the things he says and why he preaches things that you don't understand. And, and there may be times that he preaches one way and you wish he'd preach another. And there may be times that you want to hang it from the chandeliers like tonight, but he preaches a different way. There, there may be times you don't understand the pastor, but I really do want to talk to you tonight and tell you that there's a foolproof way to eliminate all the confusion. All you have to do is realize that when I accepted the opportunity to be your pastor, that meant that I had to accept the greatest calling in my life. And that calling is, I've got to get you to heaven. Whether or not I'm a good preacher matters little if I fail to get you right with God. Whether or not I'm a prolific enough orator to get you impressed with my abilities doesn't mean anything if I don't get you right before the rapture. Whether I'm an adequate administrator of ministry affairs has nothing uh, in this world to do with the plan of God, which was to get you here and get you ready for God. Whether I'm a singer, whether I'm a songwriter means nothing if I don't get you to heaven. I live daily with the reality that it doesn't matter if I'm a prophet that knows the heart and the mysteries of God if I don't get you rapture ready. 
I live daily with the understanding it doesn't matter if I'm an apostle that sets apostolic order among the churches of the world if I fail to get this church ready to see God face to face. The greatest task I have in this life outside of seeing my own family saved is to make sure that you as the church of abundant life are saved and on your way to heaven. And all I can hope for in my dealings among you is that you understand my first priority is not to see your hopes and dreams come to pass. My first priority is not to see your careers take off. My first priority is not to see your long-lost love come riding up on a white stallion and sweep you up and ride off into the distance. Uh, my first priority is not to see any of you, whether you be politician, whether you be preacher, step to a pulpit of national prominence. In fact, if I never see any of those things take place in this life, I can hold my head high if I know I've at least prepared you as a bride for the bridegroom because the Bible says the Bible is very indicative of what God expects out of us when He said that He's coming back after a church that has made herself ready as a bride for the bridegroom the Scripture says that's what God's looking for so the best that I can hope for in the times my actions as a pastor make no sense to you is that you ultimately understand that my ultimate goal is making sure you're right with God. That's why I preach hellfire and brimstone when you'd rather hear hope, health, and happiness. That's why I preach worship when times you'd rather hear me preach about rest. That's why there's times I preach about humbling yourself when you'd rather hear me preach about something a little more exciting. Trust me. I did a little research today. I have at my disposal well over 600 sermons that I could preach to you at a moment's notice. That averages about 13,200 pages of notes in my office. In those notes, if all the messages are an average like the one I chose today, that tells me that I have 2,695,200 words that God has invested in my heart to give to this congregation. And surely, at any moment, that God would speak to me and tell me I could draw some out of that arsenal of preaching that would appeal to your personal taste and your individual preferences. But every time I preach, I preach with the reality that I'm not here to make everybody happy. I'm here to make everybody right. I'm not here to make everybody shout. I'm here to make everybody saved. I'm not here to make everybody dance. I'm here to make everybody spiritual. If I do nothing else in this life, I have to get you right. Don't you know that the Bible is very specific when it tells me that there's coming a day that you're going to stand before God and that you are going to be required to give God an account of the deeds done in your body. But just as surely as the Bible said that you are going to stand before God and that you're going to give an account for the deeds done in your body, the Bible said that if I am your pastor, that I will have to stand there with you. Your Bible is very specific that God is going to require an answer from me for the condition of your soul. That's why I'm preaching. That's why I'm passionate. That's why I'm persistent. That's why I do things that don't always make sense to you. I have to get you right. Because someday if I stand before God and you're not right, God's not going to ask you, why aren't you right? Why didn't you do this and why didn't you do that? Before God does any of that, God's going to turn to me and He's going to say, did you preach to them? Did you tell them what I said? Did you give them what you gave, what I gave you? And I'm glad to say tonight after 14 years, I haven't held anything back. And I've had very few in 14 years that has wanted me to hold anything back because I want to get you right and you want me to get you right. I want to see Him. I want to see Him. I want you to look into to look into those eyes of mercy that was on me when I prayed the song said and to feel those nail-scarred hands that gently brush my tears away. I've come to tell you 
someday you're going to stand before Him. And if you're lost and it's my fault, you're going to hate my guts. But if you stand before Him and you're saved, you're going to turn around and grab this pastor and say, Thank you, Bishop. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you for making me right. Thank you for getting me where I need to be. I trust you know me enough to not allow me to lean on your trust for a minute. I trust you to know me enough tonight to know that I'm not trying to be intentionally obnoxious. But you do need to know tonight that I'm not obligated to make sense. But I am obligated to make you right. I'm not called to God to make you happy. But I am called to God to make sure you're ready. I'm not sent from God to make you impressed at my abilities. But I have been sent from God to have an impact on the destiny of your own soul. You see, nothing else matters in the spectrum of ministry if I fail to make sure that you've got what's right. Now listen to me very carefully. We, uh, we, we're not going to Jacksonville, brother. Uh, Chapman, we're going to Jackson, Mississippi. If you guys want to go to Jacksonville and have church next Friday night, that's cool. The rest of us are going to Jackson. I've got to preach in Jackson. And, uh, but you know what? I preach all over the world. I preached in foreign countries. I preach all over these United States of America. But I, every time I walk out of here, I make sure somebody's ready to preach. Somebody's ready to touch you. Every time I, I've been so sick today that I would have been perfectly justified in letting Brother Chapman preach this morning and somebody else preach tonight. But there's something in my spirit. I've got to make sure that I've done my best. I've got to make sure that I've given my all. What I'm trying to tell you here tonight is it doesn't matter if I preach with the tongues of men and angels. It doesn't matter if I turn conferences upside down and pray everything in every camp meeting through until it talks in tongues. My calling is this church. My calling is this people. And I've got to see you saved. I've got to see you right. I've got to make sure that your spirit's ready. Does anybody feel like you're a little more ready now than you were when you first began? Brother Paul, do you feel like you're a little more ready than you were the first time you laid eyes on me? I thank God that He's drawn us. He's making us what we're supposed to be. Nothing else matters in the entire spectrum of my ministry, wherever it would take me, wherever I would go, if I failed to make sure that we're ready to see Him face to face. But here's where I need to step into the heart of my message. You see, I understand more than any of you that sit before me today that my task is getting you right, but I also understand that the task of getting you right is made more difficult because of the world that we live in. Let me explain that statement for a moment. In 14 years, I've pastored just enough to let you know that getting you right means keeping you spiritual. But keeping you spiritual is complicated by the attitudes of the world, by the spirits of the world, by the temptations of the world that we live in. Now it's imperative that you understand that I didn't even come close to saying it was impossible to live for God. In fact, you look around this building tonight, you see all these shouters and all these dancers. You see all these gray-haired old matriarchs that sit around this building that are sincere with God. I want you to know you can live for God. It doesn't matter if hell camps on your doorstep. You can make it. It doesn't matter if it goes against everything you've ever been taught. You can make it. It doesn't matter if your family fights against you. You can make it. It doesn't matter if your husband threatens to leave you. You can make it. It doesn't matter if your wife walks out. You can make it. But what I am trying to say tonight is that this world provides a constant spiritual vacuum effect on the lives, even on the people of God. And even if you live above sin, it's easy to get caught up in the attitudes of carnality of this world. Can I preach to you reality tonight? Reality is that it's entirely possible to be sin-free and carnally captive. I hope you can hear me tonight. I'm not sure exactly who i got to preach to tonight, but I know I feel the message. I'm trying to preach to this congregation and let you know it is entirely possible to live free from sin. Live without a cigarette in your hands. Live without a bottle in your lips. 
and still be captive of carnal spirits and carnal attitudes that drive this. Let me say it so you can understand it. You need to know that there are people that aren't dipping, doping, and drinking with the rest of the world, but they can't stay spiritual because there's a mentality of carnality that they won't rise above. That's why it's not enough to lay down cigarettes. It's not enough to lay down bottles or a junkie's needle. It's not enough to do that. The Bible said, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's not enough to be sin-free until you bridle the carnality of your mind so that you don't think like the world thinks. You don't act like the world acts. You don't respond like the world responds. I think this is made perfectly clear when the writer of First Peter tells them where to find stability in their walk with God. He says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Listen to me very carefully today. I've found in pastoring people that it's easy to keep their hands away from sin if I can somehow convince them to keep their minds away from carnality. It's easy to keep them out of the taverns if I can keep their mind on the things of God. It's easy to keep them away from the things of this life if I can keep their spirit in tune with the things of the world to come. It's important that you understand it's not enough to come out of the world's sins, the world's vices, and the world's temptations. You also have to come out of their attitudes, out of their mentalities, out of their mindsets. Now, it's when we talk about this world's attitudes and their, their mentalities and their mindsets that we in the church often use another term. We call it carnality. And I want you to know tonight that I haven't come to this pulpit to preach against sin. I've come to the pulpit tonight to preach about carnality. You see, carnality is not a sin. This is something we've got to deal with tonight. One of the best things that my pastor ever taught me is that carnality is not a sin. I'd go to to work and my boss would cuss me and and those on down the line would cuss me and those waiting. I used to make women's shoes. Can you believe that? I worked in a shoe factory and, and I made women's shoes and all these shoes you see in Red Book and Ladies Home Journal and and Vogue and all that business, I made those things. Had to walk them through. And, and, and they some of the honoriest people in the world. Some of the prettiest people in the world are some of the honoriest people in the world. And uh, I've had them cuss me. I've had them do... But you know what? I'd go there and I'd hear that and I'd experience that by the day. And I, I'd feel so carnal. I'd feel so just... just, just carnal, just fleshly. And I'd get so angry. Until one day Pastor Johnson took me aside. And he said, son, God wants me to tell you something. I said, then tell me quick. And he said, you need to understand, son, that carnality is not a sin. All of us are going to have times when we don't feel like talking in tongues. All of us are going to experience those times when we don't feel like dancing the aisle. I've come tonight to tell you that carnality is not a sin, but it is a fleshly way of thinking. Carnality is not a thing. Carnality is a place in the spirit world where your righteous soul is restricted by the demands of flesh. And what makes carnality so dangerous to any of us is that no matter how righteous we are, there's always enough flesh left to stand between you and the will of God. I don't care if you speak with tongues of men and angels. You've got enough flesh to tell you, don't do that, you're going to make a fool out of yourself. I don't care if you're levitated off the ground and you're walking on the backs of the pews and not touching a single pew. There's still going to be enough flesh left to tell you they're going to think you're crazy. They're going to think you're out of your mind. So you here tonight didn't worship because you're afraid somebody think you're out of your mind. I think the greatest compliment you could ever receive is that you are out of your mind. God said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Again, my job is to get you to heaven. But no matter how righteous you are, there will always be flesh in your world demanding an easier way, a more comfortable way, a more convenient way. But where we in the church get into trouble is when we try to live for God in a carnal, fleshly way. So listen to me tonight. You need to know that living righteous in a carnal way creates a mentality that wants to find a way to live for God an easier way. 
It wants to live for God a more comfortable way. It wants to live for God a more convenient way. See, somebody in here is trying to listen to me tonight and something's trying to hinder you. That's the carnality I'm talking about. I'm asking you to please tune your spirit into the Word of the Lord tonight. I have somewhat to say unto thee. There's something from the Word of God that God wants to put into your spirit tonight. I want you to know you can try to live for God in a carnal way. You can say, I'm serving God. I'm living God. But my flesh is going to tell me how far I can go. And my flesh is going to tell me how much I can do. And my flesh is going to tell me how much I can give. And my flesh is going to tell me how much I should worship. I'm trying to tell you today that it's impossible to really blend living for God with pleasing the flesh. And what eventually happens to that kind of person is that there's something that becomes contradicted in your spirit that can scar you spiritually unto the day that you die. Let me narrow the field down for you a little bit tonight. I'm preaching about a place that righteous souls can move into. That they try to live for God with a righteous heart and a fleshly reasoning. See, I'm preaching about carnality tonight. <laughs> They're not shouting now, boys. Help me. I need an amen corner. They're not shouting. I figured. I know they were shouting a minute ago, but this is this is this is rock hard words. So y'all got to help me tonight, okay? I'm trying to preach to somebody in here today. Carnality. There's a place you can get in the spirit where you want to live for God, but fleshly reasoning calls the shots, and flesh tells you what you can and can't do. I want to preach to somebody. When this happens, the end result is a spiritual Frankenstein monster that has too much flesh to really be righteous, but too much righteousness to really be a good sinner. I'm preaching about that unique breed of saint that can come to church and never really worship. But they're not backslid. They're just not on fire. They never really sacrifice for the kingdom. But they're not against the church. They just don't have the church at heart. They never really seek God. But it's not that they don't love Him. They just find it easier to let somebody else find the direction of the Lord. What's going on in their world, Brother White? They found a place in the spirit world called carnality where they can live for God in a fleshly way. They can live for God. They can serve God. But carnal reasoning tells them how far to go. And carnal reasoning tells them how much to worship. And carnal reasoning tells them how much to give. And carnal reasoning tells them what they should and shouldn't do. If I accomplish nothing else tonight, I have to show you that there's a serious and sometime eternal penalty for learning to live for God in a carnal way. Trying to live for God in a state of carnality carries a terrible, terrible risk that your heart can become so contradicted that you may never recover. I talk to you about being contradicted. It puts to life the scripture that I read to you tonight about a man named Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew. You remember Lot. Lot was the one that built all the altars. Lot was the one that heard from God in the earth of the Chaldees. Lot was the one that built the altar on this mountain and that mountain. How many times did Lot stand by Abraham's side when he saw Abraham be visited by the power and the presence of God? He was there. Lot was there with Uncle Abraham. But the Bible tells us that there came a day that, that, that something the flocks got so big that they decided it was time to part ways. Uncle Lot says, Uncle Abraham says, Lot, take any direction you want, Lot, and I'll go the other direction. Maybe this was our first hint that Lot had a spirit of carnality about him. Because he said, I want to live for God down there in the valley. It'd be so easy to live for God down there by them cool running streams of water down there in the valley. There's no mountains to climb down there in the valley. There's nothing that I have to surmount down there in the valley. All i got to do is go down there and it's easy living down there in the valley. It makes you want to cry out and say, Lot, don't you remember that every time there was a supernatural move of God. It was on the heights of some mountain somewhere. But Lot was willing to sacrifice those moves of God to live in a place where it was easier on the flesh. I want to reach out to somebody's spirit in this house tonight. I want you to know it's been a long time since you had a mountaintop experience with God. I've got some of you that call me pastor. It's been a long time since I've seen you get a blessing all of your own. You need to understand it's been too long since you felt the mountain shake. It's been too long since you saw the cloud of glory descend on you. 
that's the price you have to pay when you want to live a righteous life, a carnal way. Look at him now. He has a wife to raise his daughters. In the Jewish culture, the majority of the child rearing was the wife's business. The wife was a keeper of the home. The wife had to raise the kids. The husband had to make sure that there was a living. He was the leader of the business affairs. Uh, Lot had a wife to raise his daughters. He had flocks that could make him a wealthy man. He had servants that could protect him if trouble came his way. What else could Lot possibly need? And with that, Lot moved his family down to a place of perpetual carnality. It was a place that you and I know as Sodom. Now, surely, everybody in the building remembers Sodom. That's that, that's that thing that we talk about when you talk about Sodom. There's something inside you you Man, I hope we don't talk about that too much. You want to know why? It was famous for its perversion and its homosexuality. But you need to understand, that was not close to the end of the story. Sodom had a lot of problems, honey. When you study the history of Sodom, you find out that sexual immorality was rampant on every front. Nobody was expected to be virtuous. And promiscuity was a lifestyle for most everybody. But when God... Now listen to this. You've got to hear what I'm fixing to say. We can talk about Sodom all day long, Brother Nathan. And we can talk about the immorality and the sexual impurity. We can talk about... But you know what God saw when He looked down at Sodom? He didn't see, Brother James Carroll, all of the immoral things that they were doing. That's not what God... Oh, He saw it. But that's not the thing that God addressed. When God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel, it's important to notice that God didn't say anything about their immorality. He didn't say anything about their promiscuity. In fact, Brother G.L., when Ezekiel spoke under prophetic utterance of God, he said, Behold, this was the iniquity of Sodom. They had pride. There was fullness of bread. And there was an abundance of idleness. Pride! Flesh was lifted up. Fullness of bread. Flesh was pampered. Abundance of idleness. Flesh was made comfortable. I want to preach to this church today and tell you that God saw something more dangerous than homosexuality in the midst of Sodom. God said, I see a place of carnality. Flesh is lifted up. Flesh is exalted. Flesh is made comfortable. Flesh is taken care of. I want you to know Sodom was nothing more than a type and a shadow of carnality. Their flesh is all that mattered to them. And any time flesh becomes more important than righteousness, you can be assured that sin's only a few short steps away. That's why the immorality was there. Carnality was there. Homosexuality ran rampant there for one reason. It was the hotbed of carnality. That's why all kinds of sexual perversions ran rampant in that city. One of the most immoral cities listed in all the state of the Bible. You want to know why it was that way? Because there was a carnality in the nature of that city. And when you look at this, you see that Lot and his wife and his family decide we're righteous. We've seen altars built. The Bible even says that Lot was a righteous preacher. But Lot says, going to move my family and my kids and my wife. We're going to quit being front row saints. We're going to quit being firing line saints. And we're going to live in a state of carnality. But it's important tonight that you understand what living in a state of carnality does to a Christian. I've come tonight to preach to you about what a state of carnality, when you insist on living in carnality, what it does to a sincere Christian. Look at this with me. There are some of you in this place right now that have determined that you don't have to be as close to God as you used to be. In fact, you've got extremely comfortable living in your carnality. So comfortable, in fact, that I've, I've devoted several sermons here in the last few weeks and far too many, far too many services to move some of you from their carnal comfort. But you remain virtually unmoved. Righteous? Oh, there, there, there is no question about it. There not being any sin. But you need to remember that God spoke and said Lot was a righteous man too. It's not enough to sit here tonight and say, I'm not sinning. You need to realize that living in Sodom, 
Living in carnality is going to end up changing you into something that you don't ever want to become. Living in living in Sodom, living in carnality. When I talk to you tonight about carnal Sodom's contradiction, you need to understand that when you decide to live in carnality, it contradicts something inside of a righteous man. When you force righteousness and carnality to live in the same temple, it contradicts something inside of you, and you'll end up being something that God never intended you to be. I'm preaching about Sodom's contradiction tonight because I have to show you that it doesn't matter how righteous you are. If you insist on trying to live righteous in a carnal way, it's going to create a contradiction in your spirit that will eventually spiritually maim you for life. Let me bring revelation to you tonight from the Word of the Lord. You need to know that any time you try to live saved but do it with fleshly reasoning, it's going to create one of two things inside of your spirit. I'm going to preach to you tonight about those two things. Any time you try to live righteous in a carnal way, you can be assured that the blending of carnality and righteousness is going to force you to adopt one of two natures that are spelled out in the Bible. Look at it now. Here's Lot and his family going to live righteous in a carnal way. They're going to start going to church when they want to. They're going to worship when they feel like it. They're going to give when it's convenient. They're going to pray when they need something. They're going to praise God when it doesn't put them out. They're going to live in Sodom. They're going to hold on to their righteousness and try to get it to coexist with fleshly reasoning. They're going to live for God in a way that's comfortable for the flesh. They're going to live for God in a way that lets fleshly pride survive. They're going to live for God in a way that's convenient for the flesh. But here is where the contradiction of Sodom comes into play. Watch them now as Lord and his wife tries to force carnality and righteousness to live in the same vessel. There's a contradiction of natures in carnality and in righteousness. And when you force them to live in the same vessel, you've got to be careful. I'll tell you why I'm preaching about Sodom's contradiction tonight. What happens when you force those two natures to, to, to contradict each other? I believe the answer is seen in the lives of Lot and his wife. The Bible tells us that Lot's righteousness was vexed by living. Are you listening to me now? I know you're not hanging from the roof. I don't want you hanging from the roof. I want you hanging on to the pew tonight. I want you to listen to the Word of God because I've got to tell you what God wants you to hear. You listen to me very carefully. The Bible said that Lot's righteousness was vexed by living in Sodom. Sodom was a type of carnality. Lot was a righteous man. The word vexed would mean to us that there was a serious contradiction between the righteousness in Lot and the pull of Sodom around him. It was such a vexation or a contradiction in the life of Lot that the Bible speaks about him as a righteous man dwelling among them. And when he saw, and when he heard the things that went on, it vexed his righteous soul. Saul was a man that knew what it was like to be contradicted. <laughs> Ahab was a man that knew what it was like to be contradicted. There was others in the Bible that knew what it was like to be contradicted, but Lot put himself in a place of contradiction. The Bible said that Lot was vexed in Sodom. Lot contradicted something inside of him. Lot said, I'm going to go down there and live and I'm going to go down. I'm going to live for God in the carnal way. He was a righteous man, but living in Sodom contradicted his righteousness to the place that he became something he was never supposed to be. Are you listening to me right now? He was a righteous man, but living in carnality contradicted his righteousness to the place that he became spiritually named that he was only a fraction of what God intended Lot to be. Listen to me very carefully. I'm going to close this message very quickly, so I'm going to need the spirit of the church hanging on to me tonight. If Sodom was a type and a symbol of living in carnality, then I propose to you that Lot and his wife are the two results you have when the nature of righteousness and the nature of carnality are forced to contradict one another in a saint of God's life. You'll either become a lot or you'll become a lot's wife when you force righteousness to live with carnality. Allow me to challenge the status quo stereotypes we've generated among us about Lot and his wife, okay? If I were to ask each of you in this building tonight, what is your general opinion of Lot and his wife, there'd be a vast majority of you that would immediately surmise from what you've heard preached and what you've heard said and what you've heard in the past. Lot was a righteous man trying to do what was right in a sinful world. And Lot's wife was a sinful woman that just wouldn't turn loose of the world. 
I've come to challenge those opinions tonight by the Word of the Lord. We know that Lot could hear from God. But if Lot was so spiritual, then explain to me why he wanted to give his virgin daughters to the men of the city of Sodom. If Lot was so spiritual, then explain to me why Lot said, here's my virgin daughters, you can have them. And let me contradict your next, your next understanding. If Lot's wife was so worldly, please explain to me how she could raise virgins in an immoral society. I propose to you that both of them were a result of Sodom's contradiction. They represent the two resulting creatures that evolved out of trying to live righteous in a carnal way. The first kind of creature that comes forth is a lot that can hear the voice of God and respond, but walk right out of God's presence and cast values to the wind. I'm preaching to you right now. I'm telling you the first kind of creature that's going to come when you live in Sodom's contradiction, the first kind of creature that will be created, he can have a spiritual visitation in his own, but in the very same moment, he can let sin intimidate him into compromising his own family. Lot was a righteous preacher. Then answer the question for me tonight. Why was it that Lot could hear God's voice clear enough to walk out of Sodom? But as soon as he gets out of Sodom, he gets drunk and commits immoral acts with his own daughter. Lot was a product of Sodom's contradiction. Let me tell you what happens when you start living in Sodom's contradiction. When you decide you're going to live for God in a carnal place. You're going to live for God in a carnal way. You'll come to church and speak in tongues that never really intend to change. I'm preaching tonight to somebody. You'll feel God's presence and you'll touch His Spirit. But just as quickly as service is over, you can touch sin. Even be used of God with the gifts of the Spirit. You can hear God whisper in your ear divine things. But just as easily you can be moved by the alluring voice of temptation when you get outside the building. I want to tell you what you do when you try to force your righteousness to live for God. And come. I'm trying to preach to this church tonight. I'm trying to preach to every visitor. I have no doubt that you love God. I have no doubt that you want to live for God. But I've come tonight as an oracle of the Lord to tell you, you cannot live righteous in a carnal way without it affecting you. I feel God feeling God doesn't change you unless you let it. I can hear the voice of God. Hearing the voice of God does not change you unless you let it. Do they love God? I'm convinced they do, but I'm also convinced that they're living in a Satan with Sodom's contradiction constantly warring against their hearts. We've had them right here. Righteousness and carnality trying to live in the same vessel. Those that were sensitive to the Spirit of God that could walk around and prophesy and whisper things in people's ears. They were sensitive to God. Oh, yeah. Those with the undeniable touch of God on their lives who amounted to nothing more than a miserable disgrace and a blemish on the body of Christ because they were just as sensitive to temptations when God's Spirit lifted them. They're casualties of Sodom's contradiction. They're the unfortunate results of a righteous person that tries to live for God in a carnal way. I've come tonight to challenge somebody in this building. If you're going to live for God, you've got to do it with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your spirit. You see, you cannot live for God in a carnal way. A carnal way so I'm going to live for God and do just enough. I'm going to tell you what I'm preaching about tonight. I'm preaching about a spirit that says how much can I do and still be saved? How far can I go and still be in the church? How much can I sin and still be in the choir? I want to tell you what your problem is. You're living in Sodom's contradiction. You've been carnal too long and it's created something in you that's going to destroy you if you're not careful. They're the unfortunate results of a righteous person trying to live for God in a very carnal way. What? What is that thing that says, I want to live for God, but I want to do it without paying any real price? I want to live for God, but I'm not going to have people making fun of me. I want to live for God, but if my family gives me a hard time, I'm going to quit. I want to tell you what the problem is. You've moved into Sodom city limits. 
And you may not be a homosexual. You may not be morally irresponsible. But I'm going to tell you what you are. You're a very carnal person. Because a man that's going to live for God says, I don't care what it costs me. I'm going to serve Him. I don't care what I have to give up. I'm going to serve Him. I don't care what my friends say. I've got to have more. I'm trying to preach to the love in somebody's heart for God tonight and tell you that if you ever get serious about God, you're not going to care what they say. You're not going to care what they think. You're not going to care what they surmise. There's something in you that just wants to live for God. And it doesn't stop there. Remember, I told you there are two creatures that were created by Sodom's contradiction. If it doesn't create a lot, I'll tell you what else living carnally does. It creates a lot's wife. Does anybody in here understand what I'm saying tonight? I'm five minutes from being done and I need the Holy Ghost to start moving in this place in some of your lives right now. I've come to preach to you. If it does not create a lot in you, you can be assured it will create a lot's wife in you when you try to live righteous in a carnal way. In fact, in speaking about the end times, the Bible tells us that the carnality will govern in the last days. Actually, it says, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. There's going to be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. There's going to be buying and selling. There's going to be all these different things that transpire. God said everything. You want to know what God was trying to say? God was saying the carnal. They're caught up living life. I've come tonight to preach to abundant life. I thank God that these girls are witnessing. I thank God that you're teaching Bible studies. I think you want to know why? Because that tells me we're getting out of our carnality and we're going back to the cross. We're getting out of our carnality and we're going back to our... I'm trying to tell somebody in this house today that in time is going to be consumed with just living life, just being carnal. And you understand as well as I do, ten years ago, I wasn't near this busy. Ten years ago, you weren't near this busy. I remember ten years ago, if we had revival seven weeks in a row, you're going to be there every night. Now we've got to schedule off nights. Now we've got to figure this. Now we've got to do that. You want to know why? Because we're busy about the affairs of life. But God help us that we don't start living in Sodom's contradiction. We still got to pay the price. We still got to serve Him. God said the predominant spirit of the last days is going to be carnality. But did you notice the warning that God gave us after He spoke about carnality? It's the warning that men have preached through the ages when it tells us, remember Lot's wife. Unfortunately, we've tried to remember her as a worldly harlot type woman that couldn't turn loose of the world. We've heard it preached that she was the one that wanted to hang on to all the worldly possessions that her church stood against. I refuse to believe that. I simply can't. I'm preaching about a woman that had so much morals that she raised virgins in perhaps the most promiscuous society recorded in the entire Bible. You know what that tells me, Brother Lawrence? Mama had some rules that those in her house had to live by. Mama had some standards about how they could and they couldn't dress. Mama stood firm on you can run with this one, but you're not running around with that one. I'm telling you, Mama took a stand against the things everybody else was giving in. I've come to preach to you about love. Twice. Mama had something in her pocket. Mama was a Christian. Mama raised those babies righteous. Mama raised those babies with standards. Mama raised them right. Actually, when I look at wives, Lot's wife, I have to admit, in light of what we see, I can't worry too much about her morals or her standards. She had a godly man for a husband. She had Abraham, the father of the faithful, for her uncle by marriage. In fact, the only thing that causes me concern is that she was so spiritual. The only thing that causes me concern about Lot's wife is that in all the spiritual activity going on around her, never once do we hear God speak to Lot's wife. In all the angelic visitation, there's no record of Lot's wife ever acknowledging that an angel was in her house. In fact, the only thing that she may possibly have heard was the angel saying, don't look back. And she so disvalued the voice of God, the Bible said she looked back and became a pillar of salt. 
Saint of God, don't you understand tonight that the second creature created from Sodom's contradiction is just as dangerous as the first. It's just as bad as somebody that can hear the voice of God and casually walk back out into their sin. Just as bad as the one that has the sleeves just right, that has the, 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 the dress long enough, that has the hair just right, that has the standards, precision, perfection, but they have absolutely lost their value of hearing the voice of God in their world. It's sad but true that when an individual tries to live righteous in a carnal way, we have the ability to create people that live it to the letter of the law. Skirt length is right. Their hair is right. But the voice of God doesn't even touch them because they trust in their standards. And they fail to realize all your standards don't mean anything if we can't hear the voice of God. Lift your hands up and up the Lord right now. I need you to love the Lord right now. Jesus. Come on. Come on, help me. Help me pray right now. Brother, why the church is doing good? Oh, I know the church is doing so good. I'm not preaching to a carnal congregation. I'm preaching to a few of you in the midst that need to get closer to God. I'm preaching to some of you that think feeling God is enough. It's not. I'm preaching to some of you that feel like just because your skirt's the right length and your hair is just right, that you're right with God. You better listen to this preacher tonight. Lot's wife had the standards down, Brother Don. She had the length. She had it all. But she didn't know what it was like to hear the voice of God. And if we lose everything else about us, if we can keep the voice of God, if we can hang on to the voice of God, He'll lead us back. He'll put us back where we need to be. In all this story, there are so many lessons to learn. But maybe the greatest of these lessons is that the mere possession of religious privileges will not save anybody. You may have spiritual attributes of every description. You may have the best preaching, the finest teaching. You may dwell in the midst of light, knowledge, holiness, and good fellowship. But if you have so much of God, you don't need His voice. You're a tragedy waiting to happen. Stand with me right now. I'm going to tell you what scares me. Listen to me very carefully tonight. I'm not scared when people come to our church looking like the world. That's why we're here. We love people. But I'll tell you what does scare me. People who are dressed right and look right and act right. And you couldn't move them with a million bricks falling from the sky. You're lots of life. God said in the end time there's going to be carnality consume the world. And unfortunately, one of the creatures that carnality is going to create is people that can come to church and look the part and dress the part and act the part that wouldn't know the voice of God if an angel stood in their house and said, don't look back. I'm not here to plead with the congregation tonight. I'm here to plead with individual souls. It's dangerous to try to live for God easy. I wonder if anybody in this house right now can lift your hands up and feel the presence of God in this place. I wonder if anybody in this house right now could lift your hands up and feel the presence of God. You know what I need tonight at this altar? right season. And all I really need at the altar tonight, our visitors are welcome, our saints are welcome. But whether you be a visitor, whether you'll be a saint, I've come tonight to plead with you from the bottom of my spirit. Somebody needs to step out of the aisle and say, you know what? I'm trying to live for God, but I'm doing it way too easy. I'm not calling you to repent tonight. I'm calling you to commitment. It's easy to bow on your knee and say, God, I'm sorry. It's harder to say, God, I've been doing this too easy. I've been taking too much for granted, God. I'm not going to live it easy anymore, God. I'm going to live it with a passion. Somebody at Lot, 
You feel, God, that you're just not strong enough to live above sin. That's not enough. You're living in Sodom's contradiction. God's wise. You look the part, you dress the part, you act the part. But you can't even feel God dealing with you right now. That's Sodom's contradiction. Brother what I've been too easy. I want to sell out again tonight. Why don't you step out right now and make your way in front of this church? Let's love Him. It's time. If you seriously want to be used of God, it's time to say, okay, God. Been too easy, too long. I've come tonight to make some commitments. Our visitors are welcome. Our saints are welcome. God, I want to live for you. I want to live for you. Lord, I don't think living for God has to be hard. Living for God has to be passionate. Living for God has to be righteous. Living for God means you've got to give it all you've got. I want to live for you, Jesus. We've got souls praying all around the building tonight. I need some of you to help us today. in church. Keep helping us pray tonight, church. I don't want to live in Sodom's contradiction, Lord. 